Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the 12th, 2017. This is episode 2098 of the Survival Podcast. Meaning on Monday we will have episode 2100, 2100. Man, that's a, it, it's not really a milestone, but it kind of is. Isn't it just 2100 episodes of the Survival Podcast over almost 10 years? Anyway, like to just take a moment thinking about that, and, and thank you guys who have been with me the entire ride, part of the ride, since yesterday. Uh, if at any time you've supported my work in any way, I just want to say thank you as I kind of you know approach a number like that, 2,100 episodes. Anyway, it is a Thursday. That means it's time for a listener call show. This is where you pick the phone up, you mash the numbers, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. You do that. And uh, you'll get a, a voice machine sort of kind of thing, and you'll leave me a message, and through the magic of the interwebs, it'll be emailed to me in an audio file, and I will review it for inclusion on the show. And the way you get on the show, if you really want to get on the show, you call, you make sure you have lots of bars on your phone if you're on your cell phone, you call from a quiet place, you speak directly into the phone, you don't turn your head away and back and away and back and in and out, you stay right at the same distance on the phone like you're talking to a person, And you make your point or ask your question in the first sentence. You say, hi, Jack, this is Tom. My question is, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-bam. And then you give me the details. If you do that, your odds of getting on the air go from something like, oh, I don't know, 10% to something like 70%. So just me trying to help you help yourself with that. So that's how you make that call. Here's what we're going to talk about today. Using leaves from a landscaper for composting and mulch. And is there any concerns there? And if so, how big are they really? Um, what is smart-tarted? It's an interesting term. I kind of like it, and we'll talk a little bit about it. Not a lot, but it'll be your entertainment section for the day. Um, more on emergency gas for newer cars. Just a little tip that I think is valuable. Finding an investor for your business. Should you? What's it mean? How do you value your business? When do you do it? Etc. Um, are apps now listening to what you say for marketing? Yes, marketing. Um, I'll leave that one until you hear it from the source, and then we'll talk a little bit about why it may or may not be what's going on. I'm not really sure. Choosing ammo for your 200, for your deer hunt, in this case for a 270 in the heavy woods, so not trying to get the most out of that flat shooting round that was a, a favorite of Jack O'Connor's, but you know, busting a buck in the 50 to 60 yard range. Is there any special considerations there? An update on Walking to Freedom. Some of you may never have even heard of Walking to Freedom. I'll talk about that a bit today. Status of our aquaponics and aquatic systems. And a question or just really some thoughts on that from a listener. And then I have a little segment at the end that ties in with the Amazon item of the day called The Truth About Boy Scouts Letting Girls In. Or should we call them the Z Scouts now? And I may not have the negative opinion you expect, but I still might have a negative opinion. You'll see when we get to it. Before we do that, let's go ahead and uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is... Sponsor of the day number one today is the TSP Business Directory. You know, we have about 150, 160,000 people a day that listen to the Survival Podcast. And we have a large number of people in that audience that are entrepreneurs that are running their own business. And many of them advertise in the TSP Business Directory that you can find at tspbiz.com. 
If you're a listener to this show, you should check out the business directory from time to time and see if there's anybody there that you want to do business with. Or if you need something, maybe check the business directory first. Keep it in the family, so to say. And if you're a business owner and you're not advertising in the directory, it's so affordable. There's no reason that you shouldn't be. You can get started for as little as $5 per six months and be a sponsor in the business directory. There's no room left to sponsor the show. The, the, the show sponsorship is filled up, but you can get exposure to our whole community by simply going to tspbiz.com and listing your business in the directory. Again, it's 5 bucks per six months, and there's some premium options available. Learn more at tspbiz.com. And, guys, if you do business with a directory member, leave a review. That will really help us to build the value of the directory. Next up today, harvesteating.com. There is nobody that's listened to this show for more than, like, oh, I don't know, 15 minutes that hasn't figured out that one of my passions in life is cooking. In fact, uh, it, it is probably other than teaching in general and preparedness, self-sufficiency, and entrepreneurship, it's up there in the top layers of the things that I'm really passionate about and the things that I really enjoy. The other day I was uh, cooking some stuff, and I was just like, I was in there, and I just like said to myself out loud, like, this is great. And my wife's like, what, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, I just love cooking. And uh, one of the people that's really helped me up my game as a cook is Chef Keith Snow. He's done that with some great instructional videos and articles, and he has done that with a great podcast, and he's done that with great things that you can buy, like seasoning and spices and stuff like that, to up your own cooking. He also has some really great courses out on how to become a better cook, and you can learn more about all of that stuff at his website, HarvestEating.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was from history. The year that was, we are sitting in the year 63. Uh, we, we covered the year 63 yesterday. I have a second segment on 63 from Southpaw Ben. It's called Pompeii is Shaken. Last year, Pompeii was hit by a massive earthquake that destroyed much of the city. Modern scientists have estimated this quake to have been between a 5 and a 6 on the Richter scale. Most of the buildings there were damaged, and falling oil lamps caused fires to break out across the city. During this era, Mount Vesuvius was very active, with people being used to regular small earthquakes. Pliny the Younger wrote that these minor quakes were not particularly alarming because they are frequent in Campania. However, this earthquake caused panic, and over 20,000 citizens fled the city in fear of an eruption. During this quake, some gas escaped from the volcano, and killed a flock of about 600 sheep. My take by Southpaw Ben. When, Mount Ves when Vesuvius finally blew in AD 79, its destruction was legendary. Unlike in 62, the earthquakes before it blew its top were small and didn't cause people to flee, as was stated above. The people of this region were used to minor earthquakes, but for now the people of Pompeii are just working to rebuild after a destructive earthquake and trying to get back to their daily grind. You know, when we hear an earthquake of a 5 to 6, and we look at some of the things that have gone on in, mo in the modern world with earthquakes, you know, up at like a 7-2 or a 7-4 or a 7-6, right? And you understand Richter scales is exponential. Like, the difference between a 6 and a 7 is huge, but the difference between a 7 and an 8 is like way more than the difference between a 6 and a 7. So you understand that like a 5 is pretty mild earthquake by modern standards, and you say, well then why was it so, well, they built everything differently, didn't they? You know, they, they, there wasn't steel uh, reinforced concrete. It was just sort of concrete and stone and stack. You, you got it, you know? One of the things that's always amazed me, though, is these cities of this time period, with buildings built mostly of stone and the, the, the concrete of the day, etc., how devastating fires were. Have you ever thought about that? 
I actually know why. Maybe I'll tell you in a future episode, but sometimes I like to just, you know, here's the thing, right? So, like, <laughs> this is funny. I, uh, on Facebook yesterday, I did a, the GIF thing where you say, you know, explain this with a GIF, and I posted a picture, and it's like this little creature with a book, and there's like another little creature on the ground, like rolling back and forth and holding its ears, and it's being pounded with the book by the other creature, And it's saying, time to learn. It looks like they're in a library. It's like, time to learn, time to learn, time to learn. And I said, this is this is my job explained in a gift. Explain your job in a gift to me. With a gift, if you don't know, it's a little, like a little short movie that's just really a graphic. And uh, sometimes I feel like, that's, like I'm pushing knowledge, pushing knowledge, ramming knowledge into people sometimes that don't really want it. But sometimes I like to try to make people want knowledge for themselves so they go out and seek it. So if you've ever wondered why cities, cities built mostly of stone and concrete were so adversely affected by fires, do a little research and find out. It might trigger some other things in your mind. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, your calls for today's show. The first call today is on leaves from landscapers. With that, caller, take it away. Hey, Jack, I wanted to get your thoughts on using anonymously sourced fall leaves in the garden for compost and sheet mulch. Earlier this year, I made friends with our local gravel and topsoil guy, and he said that even though he didn't sell compost anymore, people still gave him their leaves and offered to give me a dump truck of leaves for free. Uh, some people have said that I shouldn't take the leaves because I don't know what chemicals people have put on their yards. That seems a little overblown to me, but I just wanted to get your thoughts. Thanks. So here's how I feel about residential organic waste okay when it comes to um yard residential organic yard waste because i'm thinking when i said residential organic waste that could be something totally different right so residential organic yard waste if it comes from a tree or a shrub i won't even think twice i will use it and the reason i'll do that is anything that could be there chemically that would be so detrimental to something like your tomato plant or your own shrubs and trees would heavily adversely affect the damn tree itself that the stuff came off of. And the fact that it's there means it probably didn't. Now, what is that? What's the converse of that? The converse is if it's yard trimmings, if it's grass clippings, I will not use it unless I know for a fact that it came from a source that does not use chemicals of any kind. I, I bifurcate the two. The, the leaves live up on the tree. They fall down. Twigs and things like that fall down. Sure, you might get a little bit of grass, a little bit of this, a little bit of that mixed in with it. But in the end, um, every person I've ever known that has one of those suction machines, right? They're like, uh, they look like a leaf blower. But they have a bag on them and they're like a giant vacuum. Most of them, in fact, are leaf blowers, but they also suck. They go from suck to blow. <laughs> Come on. I'm not doing it. I'm not playing a pop culture reference on that one today. You, you know where it's from, though, right? Your, your father's cousin's uncle's and Anyway, so you go from, from blow to suck, and you suck the leaves in it, and it shreds them up. 
any neighbor I've ever had, anybody I ever know that, that, that has one of those because they think they got to get rid of the horrible leaves from the yard, I've always taken every bag of leaves I can get from them. Whether I compost them, whether I mulch them, I just spread them the hell out on my property. If they don't want the organic fertilizer, I'll take it. When it comes to grass clippings, that's where we have people you know, doing the true green chemlon thing and what have you. And the concentration in those trimmings of chemicals and residues is going to be much higher because they're literally drenched in it. Where the tree may pick some of that stuff up, but I mean, you're talking it's got to make a trip up through the cambium, which is the layer between the bark and the actual wood of the tree. It's got to get through there. It's got to find its way out through the woody stem material. It's got to get out into the leaf. And if it's that bad, how did the tree live? And in the end... These things, and like the number one thing used in residential situations is glyphosate, Roundup, and it does break down over time. And the composting process alone, what might be there, I believe will do a very good job of taking care of it. So I just don't have any concerns about leaves, tree, material, sticks, and stuff like that. But again, I would, I would refuse anything that is grass clippings unless you have a verification that it's not under sort of some sort of a chemical management program, which includes, you know, the guy putting out weed and feed with a spreader twice a year, which is what most residential middle class landowners that don't have a landscape company do. They every year they go down and get the bonus S or whatever and they fill the little hopper up and they push it around and they talk to their neighbor about the weather and is it going to be time to grill steaks or whatever and then they go watch football. And they feel good because their grass is nice and green. Well, it'd be nice and green if you spray painted it too, but it's probably not a good idea. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. Hello, Mr. Spearco. This is Chan Lunsford calling out of Pleasant Grove, Utah. Uh, I recently came up with a concept that I thought you might get a kick out of, um, and it's called Smart Tarted, which means smart brain retarded actions, um, which I think is like a perfect description of our politicians or say how uh, California's water system runs where they pump water back uphill to get water to places instead of harvesting it um, as it flows downhill. So uh, just curious what you think about the concept of smart started. All right, Jack, thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. Cheers. Well, I have been one that's been known to say the following. I've, I, I realize that we today live in a world full of educated idiots. And I think educated idiots is another way of saying something like smart-tarted. I kind of like that. It's kind of plucky. Um, and again, I know some people out there, that's a reference to retard, and that's not right. We shouldn't say that word. Well, I'm not going to explain it all again, but I think retard is a perfectly good word. And I would never use it to describe somebody that we would describe as, let's say, truly mentally challenged. I, I, I've gone through the whole thing before, but if you look up the definition of the word, then you look at how people behave, well, it's a perfectly acceptable and useful word. So anyway, uh, smart-tarted, uh, and then comparing it to our leaders and, and what have you, uh, I don't like the term leaders, our elected officials, our elected thieves, what have you. I do say I will say one thing in defense of the elected thieves, though. It is very difficult to understand why a person takes certain actions if you have never been in a position to be the one to make the decision about those actions. 
And as much as I like to beat on the state, I try to have a little bit, a little bit of sympathy or a little bit of empathy for the people that serve the roles as decision makers within this giant bureaucracy, specifically those at like lower levels. And this is why. Number one, I believe most of them believe they're doing the best that they can for the people that they think they serve. I really believe that their motivation in general is pretty decent, at least going in. I think many of them are bought and paid for not long after that. But I think most people that are in those positions are trying, like, this is what I have to work with, and this is what I have to do, and this is what happens, at least they believe, bad if I don't do what I'm supposed to do. And I do find it analogous to work, and I think it's maybe something that's people, that people in their careers maybe a little bit more attuned to, especially depending on where you are in your career. I remember full well, you know, working for a company in my early 20s that I still think was an abusive company, by the way, but it was like one of my first jobs out of the Army. And just having seething hatred for management and then having come up through the world of business and, and bid things like a regional sales vice president I've uh, been in middle and senior management in multiple companies, serving uh, as, as management, sales vice president, and serving in some companies as a C-level officer. I, I think back to that young 21-year-old Jack Spear and go, you were stupid. You didn't know what the hell you were talking about. Those people probably hated their bosses more than you hated them. And I think that, you know, we can throw around terms like smart, targeted, and educated idiots, but I think we need to make sure that we're applying that judiciously and appropriately to appropriate behavior with knowledge of what's going on. Just a little temperance. Now, you're not going to hear like me stop beating the state up, and you probably will hear me use the term smart-tarded in the future. Um, but I just think when we're, when we're playing with these ideas, that it is important to remember in the end we're all people, and that you're going to see people do things that make no sense to you. But if you knew what they knew, you might you might feel differently about that, and you might not. And conversely, if they knew what you knew, they might feel differently about that. But there's one thing that's true about positions of power in the state, and this is actually true about positions of power within companies as well. The higher you go, the more people want five minutes of your time to give you their agenda on what they want. And what happens is when you're when you have relatively little decision making, people a few people want an hour of your time. And the higher you go, you go from a few people to thousands of people that want a few minutes. And in those few minutes they're trying to shove an idea that might take two days to fully comprehend into something to get you to do it. And in our system what they've determined is if they pay you enough money you might do it. Or if they convince you that you can trust them and pay you money, that you might do it. And a lot of times the things that we look at and go, this is stupid. Well, it is, but it's also smart. It's smart for somebody. And I'm not talking about the person that's, that's voting for it or sponsoring the bill or, what, or implementing it as a bureaucrat. Whoever's behind it, the lobbyist, when it comes to government anyway, because this, this spans way more than government, but in government, the lobbyist behind it is employed by a company, and for them it's a brilliant move. It stifles competition or what have Even if it increases their own overhead, as long as they can absorb it and their competitors can't. 
And that's what you have to understand. At these high levels, a lot of things that look like they're completely moronic, well, they are moronic for the, for the good of the whole or for freedom and liberty, but they're smart for somebody. And one of the ways to figure out who's really in control is when something looks really stupid. And it's not a hot-button social-level issue like gun control, because that's, that's bantered around left and right, okay? But if we look at something that's like specific to an industry, like the pharmaceutical industry, and this, or, you know, labeling, like for instance, within Obamacare. Within Obamacare, a lot of things that were never considered uh, medical devices became medical devices, Like, there's, there's women out there that sell reusable pads. Not really a subject I want to get deep into, right? Not really interested in that, but they do. And one of our customers does that. And she was, because she's all into the natural and stuff like that, and she was explaining how they, they, they labeled that as a medical device. All pads were medical devices, including reusable ones. And the problem with that is she had to be licensed to sell a medical device. Now, that sounds completely retarded, unless you're in that business and you don't care about needing to be licensed to sell it because you're a giant conglomerate company that has a license for everything, right? So who is that smart for? So how does that little thing get written, and not just that one device, but many other things that became medical devices that never were, and it seems completely smart-tarted, smart people doing stupid things, But who's the real smart person behind it, and how does it benefit them? Because all of this shit is produced and written by people who aren't smart-tarted. They're like friggin' evil smart. They're smart for themselves. And it, it, what it makes me think of is things I used to do that I thought were okay. And they weren't anywhere near this bad, because it was in the private sector. But still, I realize now, it was like evil shit to do. Like when I was a VP of sales for Fluke... We would go in and work with a, with a design firm or an architect firm that was designing a cable installation, and we would help them write the specification, and we would give them like 10 pages of boilerplate on testing, and then that way they didn't have to do it, and as long as it got to be my 10 pages instead of, let's say, Agilent's 10 pages, when that job hit the street six months from now, whoever did it had to use my test equipment, and there was no way out of that, and I felt like it was okay. I wasn't smart-tarted. I was smart. I was trying to make my sales number. I was put in a position where that was my job. Make your number or get fired. Well, this is one way I can help make my number, isn't it? And I was good at it. But in reality, was the customer best served by that? And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. It was total bullshit. Our tester's the best. Listen, it's a Cat6 cable. It either can pass signal at that level or it can't. It either runs your equipment or it can't. There's like 10 different companies that make test equipment that can tell you whether that's true or not. Ours is not the best. It's just a piece of equipment. It does the same shit everybody else's does. But we would hard spec it in. Well, that's one thing in the private sector. It's another thing when it comes to legislation. Pattern recognition. Anyway, I didn't think we'd go that long on that one, but uh, let's take another one. This is on uh, some follow-up on new cars and trying to put gas in them. Hey, Jack, David, Northwest Arkansas. I was just listening to uh episode with the uh, story about the guy trying to put gas in uh, in the car on the side of the road there in the uh, capless tank. And I remembered when uh, my wife's head 
car had the same problem. I, I tried to put fuel in it, and uh, lo and behold, if you look in the trunk of most of those vehicles, there's going to be a funnel that'll fit that opening. Just a quick piece of information for anybody out there that finds themselves in that situation. Thanks for what you do. Bye. You know, on this one, I, I don't have a lot to add, except kind of the reason I thought it was really important is, number one, yes, new vehicles are now coming with these weird gas tanks. There's no cap. They have like a little door that opens when you shove the thing in, and I just have that in a Cadillac that I, I rented. So since I had rented it, I drove it like I stole it for a week. It was kind of fun. Um, but when I was trying to top it off, and you know when you get to where as soon as you hit the splash of the gas, it kicks off the pump, the old trick is you back it out a little bit, and you run it slow, and then you can get maybe another quarter gallon in there, right? So I'm heading to the airport at this point. I want to make sure that needle says freaking full when I get there. Well, I do like gas goes everywhere. And then this guy calls in last week and says, tried to help somebody, and they couldn't get the gas into the, the, the tank. There was like one opening, and this thing had to be pressed and pushed aside with a multi-tool, and then there was a second door down there. Well, he ended up using a funnel. Well, apparently these new cars that have this within their kit that they come with have a funnel for that. So here's the interesting thing. The guy that helped the gal last week that this follow-up is uh, in regards to, there'd be no way for him to know that. His car didn't have one of these stupid newfangled gas projector thing or whatchamacallits. Well, it prevents gas siphoning. Yeah, that's not... I've don't think I've ever had gas siphoned out of my car. Anyway, and I could still totally siphon gas out of somebody's car like that. There's other ways they prevent that now. But anyway, um, the person who he was helping should have known they had that piece of equipment. So I think it's important when you get a new vehicle to not assume that just because you've driven cars your whole life and know how the hell to change a spare tire, that one of the first things you should do is go through an inventory of everything that that vehicle comes with, including like the jack that it comes with, the lug wrench that it comes with, does it have a jack and a, a lug wrench and a spare tire, etc., and determine a couple things. One, where is it, and how does it work? And are you missing something that you think came with your car because it's new that's not there? Like a spare tire. Yes, new cars often now don't come with friggin' spare tires. It's ridiculous. Um, and then, is it adequate and safe for the task at hand? If, if I need to change a tire on my giant F Ford F-350, I'm not using the freaking stupid scissor jack thing that came with it. I'm not going to die under my truck. I have a, it's like a 10-ton floor jack, a little kind of compact like the ones a mechanic use, in my toolbox. So, as soon as I bought that truck and I looked at that jack, I went, nah, uh-uh, no, no. <laughs> No, 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 no. So, again, shoring up what's missing, but also being aware of what's there. Because the guy that called in last week had, you know, the cop stopped, and he's got his multi-tool out. Like You can see three guys trying to put gas in a car. And probably feeling like everybody thinks they're an idiot, but going, we're not smart, Cardi, you don't understand. There's something different here. And all this gal would do is like pop her trunk, and there's probably a little bag in there, and a little perfect funnel that shoves right in there, and boom, you're good. So just make sure you're taking inventory of everything in any new vehicle or any used vehicle that's new to you. And it's a good idea, as I just mentioned, with rental vehicles to do that as well. Um, you rent a vehicle, you know, you could be stuck somewhere with it. 
you probably aren't going to have all your stuff you're used to having. Take a look around, see what's there. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one on investors for your business. Hey, Jack. My question for you is, how would you find an investor for your business? And when would that make sense? Yeah, a little background, I possibly have, have the option or opportunity to increase my business. And if I did that, I would need, need to get an influx of capital. I don't know that I want to do it. I don't know that it makes sense for me. But just while I'm thinking about it and stuff, it occurred to me I have absolutely no idea how you would go about locating an investor and what exactly you would, you know, is maybe standard for having to give up for that investment, what percentage of your company, what, you know, makes sense and stuff. But anyway, if you could cover that, I would appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Okay, to answer your question, I want to give you some background as someone that's been approached as an investor, that's been a, a, an owner in companies that have taken on investors and has seen investing investing opportunities pitched, not just to myself, but people with far more money than I have and how they've analyzed it. And I'll tell you, one of the there's a lot of bullshit in it and a lot of fluff and crap. But one of the most honest reality TV shows on TV right now is Shark Tank. And not the way the banter and all that's all canned. It's all bullshit. But the, the, in the end, the way you see a shark evaluate a proposal, I want $100,000 for 10% of my company. Okay, then you're valuing your company at $1 million. That's what that means. Now, you can be valuing that company two different ways. And as an investor, I'm not really interested in the one that you probably want to do. You can be valuing it based on today's valuation. And there are companies out there that will do a business valuation for you and determine what the value of your business is. There are certain formulas and stuff that I can't lay out on the air where you can do a reasonable approximation of it for yourself. Kind of the gold standard in doing a company valuation is a company called Blackmore. Uh, and you can find them at blackmorepartnersinc.com. Probably above what a company the size of someone who would call and ask me what to do would, would need as far as a valuation company. But Blackmore would be a company that no one would question the valuation if Blackmore did it. In fact, there is what's known as a Blackmore method which basically is reverse engineering of what Blackmore does to valuation a company. And a lot of times you'll read in shareholder agreements on smaller companies where two or three guys start up a company in their backyard or something. They'll say that, the, that if, in the event that one partner wants to sell or to another, not that Blackmore must do the valuation, but the Blackmore method will be used to determine the value of the company. Uh, in fact, there's companies that say that's what they do. I guess they couldn't trademark it. I'm not sure, but that's my experience in, in that world. But, but that would be, what is the company worth today based on its assets, its projected sales, its accounts receivable, its, its balance sheet, right? Uh, and, and contracts in hand that are not yet being executed but are considered valid. So if, if you come to me and you want me to invest in your company, and, and on paper, your company, your company's worth a half a million dollars, but you just signed a deal 
to do a million dollars worth of business with this other company. And the reason you need an investor is because you can't deliver without the money. That million dollar purchase order is going down as an asset in your company. It's but it's probably going to go down with what's called a contingency. And that means that as we begin this process, of, I'm not just going to write you a check and hand it to you. There's going to be a process here. And as we begin this process and we evaluate exactly what my money is going to do for you and start to put it in motion, if that purchase order goes away, I'm out. And I'm not bound at that point. You see? So you see elements of that in Shark Tank. And it's very accurate. The way that the person that owns the business usually wants to value the company is I want to sell you 10% of my company for a million dollars, and I, for $100,000. And I say, well, then you're valuing your company at a million dollars. And you say, well, no. I'm saying my company will be worth a million dollars. So you want me to invest based on the future value of the company. So that's not how an investor makes money. Now, if you expect the company to be worth a million dollars next year, and I can get in a day at that price, if there's competing investors, I might do it. If I think it's going to be worth, you know, two or three or four million a year or two further down the road. But how long do I want to let my money sit there? So let me tell you what an investor is always actually thinking when someone wants their money. They can't get a loan or they don't want to service debt against a loan and risk their own money, so they want the ability to risk mine. And it's true. It doesn't mean you're bad. It doesn't mean you're evil. There's good reasons as a business owner to want investor money so that you don't have to service debt against it for the next six months or a year so you can put 100% of the money to work so it doesn't come in as revenue, so it's not subject to taxes, and yet it doesn't go down as debt. Because if I borrow a million dollars, then I have a hell of a, of a nut to crack every month to make sure I pay that back. And the bank doesn't care that I will be able to pay that loan back on the 24th month. They want to know if I can service it on the 2nd. So there may be so what the ideal investment is a bank won't touch this but it's low risk. This company will make use of this capital and be worth more than it is the day that I buy in in 6 months, a year, 2 years. It's about as far out as they're going to think. So how do you find an investor? <laughs> you have to find someone that has money and thinks that way. And it's as varied as it can possibly be. And, and it, it, there, there are websites where you can go out looking for investors and all, but it's, it's, it's a bloodbath. It's more along the lines of networking locally and finding the affluent people in your area and, and finding people that you can make a pitch to. But I, I want you to really consider things before you do that because at least you're in touch with reality. And the reality is you're selling a part of your company. So then there's two different types of investors with motivations behind why they invest. And you see this on Shark Tank, too. One is, I need money, and you have it, so I want it, and I'll sell you 20% of my company. 
Therefore, you have no controlling interest in my company, and I don't want anything from you other than your capital and the ability to use it under whatever terms we come to an agreement with at, to increase the value of the company. And you can, at that point, sell your shares to someone else. You can share sell them back to the company. You know, but 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 in in general, I don't want anything from you as a company owner. I just want your money. And a lot of investors like that type of a play because that's what they they have earmarked. If they're affluent enough, they have earmarked a certain amount of money as risk capital. And that's what I want to do. I want to put it in this company that I've evaluated, that I've had my financial people. And that's the thing. Like you're not going to sell this to the guy. I don't care. People that have this kind of money, unless they won the lottery and they're stupid, unless they're smart-hearted, right? Um, what they're going to do is they're going to evaluate it enough to determine whether or not they're interested. And they're going to take it to their CPA and their financial advisor and their team, and they're going to say, find everything wrong with this deal before I sign it so I can go back and renegotiate it. How do I know that? That's what I would do. That's what I would do. Find every risk element that I'm missing here. Tell me why I shouldn't do this deal. And they're going to try to get their team to talk them out of it. And when their team can't talk them out of it, then they'll do the deal with you. I'm not even saying they need their team to recommend it. They have to. Their team will tell them not to invest for these reasons, even if overall they think it's a good investment. That's their job. Give me all of the downside to make sure I'm not like sold on this guy's emotion, because that's the bullshit in Shark Tank, right? So that's that's what you're doing. So I really challenge business owners that are like, well, I need to grow my business, and I need capital to grow my business, to first justify that to themselves. And the show I did Tuesday, great analysis for determining whether or not you really need more capital in your business. What are you going to do with it to the penny? If you don't know what you're going to do with every single penny of capital that you're bringing into your business, you're bringing capital in your business because it sounds like a good idea. And then if everything goes 100% right, how long does it take for that to be have, have been worth doing? If it goes 50% right, how long does it take for that to be worth doing? And what's the point where how far do I go down before I really shouldn't have done it? And what are the odds that that's going to happen? And if you build a good case scenario for that, a lot of times the best course of action is that you go to a bank and you seek a small business loan with a business plan and a business case scenario that demonstrates to them, I need this money for new tooling. The reason I need this for new tooling is I have existing customers that have offered me additional business. They've offered me that additional business contingent upon my ability to deliver, and I cannot deliver because I do not have the equipment I need to be able to deliver. This is what this equipment does. Here's the way I'm going to buy it. I'm going to lease it, whatever. Here's why. Here's my terms on that equipment. Here's my projection on my profit margin. Here's how much money I need to do that. Here's my ability to service debt in excess of my new profits for reinvestment into my company. Loan officers like talk like that. Then they give you the loan. Assuming you weren't... See, that's the thing. You can talk out of your ass and trick an investor. And your consequences, if they do not become a majority shareholder, are minor. There's only so much they can do. That's why it's a difficult position to put yourself into it as an investor. Owning 30% of a company means you do not get to say what happens. And if you are a hands-off or they want you hands-off investor, then all you're doing is, is throwing the dice and hoping it works out. 
that business owner, if they can get the loan and make the numbers work, is better off because they retain 100% ownership of their business and they don't alienate a potential future partner with something that didn't work as best as it should. And they retain the, you retain the equity in the event that you ever do need to bring investors in. Because if you bring me in as an investor and I buy 30% of your company, you only have 70% left. If you need more capital, now you're sitting there with 70%. And if you sell another 30%, You're still the majority shareholder with 40, but me and your other investor just became best buddies, and we now control 60% of your company. You see how that works. Then the other way you bring investors in is the investor that wants to be involved, that has a symbiotic capability to aid your business. So if you were in, if you were asking for an investment from me, and it were related to, let's say, regenerative agriculture, permaculture, survival and self-sufficiency, anything within my wheelhouse, that doesn't mean I'm going to do the deal. There's all kinds of deals I can do tomorrow morning that I won't do because they're not worth the effort to me. But if you want me to be a hands-on partner as an investor, and you want me to buy 30% of the company, but then you also want me to promote what you're doing, okay, now I can do something to better your business in addition to providing capital. And, and you got to think about all of this before you even decide if you want an investor, before you worry about where to go find one. But that's, that's investors are going to want to invest in your company at its value today, okay? Not its value tomorrow. The value tomorrow is their profit. It is their incentive. Well, I know my company's only worth a quarter million dollars now, but I think it's going to be worth two million dollars in two years. Great. Well, I'll invest now with you. You built this equity up to a quarter million. I'll buy 25,000 of it from you. Now I have 10%. I'm hoping you're right, and I hope my 10% equity in two years goes you know, from you know, 25,000 to 250,000. Now I'm happy. You can't do that for me. Why are we talking? So I know that's not a direct answer. But that's the way you have to be thinking right now before you decide if this is even right for you. And I sincerely challenge you to determine in every way that you can what you want to do with this capital to grow your business, do all your projections, and see if debt makes more sense. See if debt, I'm not saying it does. There's, there's very compelling reasons to go with equity sale versus debt acquisition. But there's very compelling reasons to go with debt versus sale of equity as well. And you have to determine which one's right for you. And I really encourage you to have a deep conversation with a CPA and a tax attorney about this before you make any final decisions about even where you want to go next before you even do it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. I got some uh, creepy things that I want to share with the audience since I got my last update on my phone. Now... I'm running uh, Android version 7.1.1 for all the nerds out there. So <clears throat> what happened is over the weekend on Saturday, my wife and I went to Walmart. We are walking around, and she uh, said, hey, I think the uh, Pioneer woman has a new bedding line that just came out in here. Let's go see. Well, we walked over, and, yeah, it's not there yet. All right, well, what about our day? Well, today, Wednesday, my phone came up with a notification. Yeah, Pioneer Woman Bedding, now available at Walmart. You know, little emojis of fireworks and celebration. Now, what, what makes it kind of weird is I've never received 
a notification from the Walmart app ever before. And the fact that it was that that we were talking about and that wasn't there, well, that made it creepy. Okay, so let's go about this. Well, also on Monday, I had uh, my wife was applying for a job with the post office, and one of it is is that you have to do a background check. And I got an email and you know telling us how to do that. And well, on Monday, my phone said, "Warning: Respond to this email. You only have 24 hours left." Looked at really. So the thing that's creepy is a program is reading the information, deciphering it, and giving you suggestions. All on its own. I didn't ask it to do it. So I just want to hear your thoughts on um, on where this is going. Is it going to escalate? Do you think this is going to be like Elon Musk and James Cameron said, where it's AI is going to be the death of us, it's going to be chaos? Just want to hear your thoughts. Talk to you later, man. So it is creepy, but it might be coincidence. Um, I'll give you an example of, of this happening a long time ago. It had nothing to do with being spied on directly. Um, we had one of those freak ice storms here in Texas. This is before I moved to uh, Arkansas. So this is eight, seven years ago, something like that. Um, and we didn't really need anything being preppers or whatever, but... It got to the point where I think my wife, there was something my wife wanted that we just didn't have. So uh wanted to see how well the all-weather tires worked in the truck. I, uh, I skated down the ice rink that was our, our little road and went to Tom Thumb that was open. It was about a one-mile drive. It was it was really relatively safe. In fact, the only place that wasn't, the road was pretty good. The only place it was dangerous was the parking lot itself. And it was more dangerous walking through it in the dark than it was driving through it slowly because uh, it was patches of ice. And I got her whatever she wanted, and this is, you know, before we had things like Netflix and stuff. I think it might have existed, but it was back when Netflix mailed you DVDs and what have you. And I think my kid was, you know, dubbing them and selling them for five bucks a pop at the bar he worked at uh, that, those days. And uh, so we're, it, it, it's cold. You're going to be sitting in the house quite a bit. And I'm at Tom Thumb, and I see this display of all these DVDs. And they had a miniseries from the 80s called The Blue and the Gray about the Civil War. And I had my wife's phone number in my head. And she has all the discount cards to the various grocery stores. So it was like nine bucks for the whole set, you know, the whole miniseries. So I'm like, yeah, I could binge watch that. I guess that was before binge watching was a thing. Uh, and so I bought it. And when I get up to the counter get whatever the crap was she wanted in, in this copy of Blue and the Gray. And they said, you have a discount card? I'm like, no, I don't have it with me. They're like, do you have a phone number? So I give them my wife's phone number. Yeah, okay, you're Dorothy. Yeah, sure, I'm Dorothy, whatever. Um, and her email was on our Amazon account, all right? And this was like a Saturday. And Monday morning, what comes in the emails from Amazon.com Tons of shit on if you on the Civil War. You know, you might be interested in this movie or that movie. It was all Civil War stuff. I can't say 
that Tom Thumb provides information to Amazon, but it sure felt that way. Was that a coincidence or was it creepy? Your wife or your you have this Walmart app, and this is a big thing apparently that they're bringing the pioneers woman's betting like I give a crap to Walmart or whatever. Is that a coincidence or is it creepy? I don't know. I don't know, but if I mean if that kind of thing's going on at the app level, we got a real problem. And I, I think we're at a point now where this is how we have to live. If there's a device around you with a microphone, you need to act as if somebody you don't know is listening to you, whether that somebody is an actual person or a technology. And it's it's a weird world to live in. And on some levels, if the, the data wasn't used against you, it could be beneficial. Your wife wanted to know when the pioneer woman's betting, whatever the hell reason was available. So in a way, that's actually a service, but it's also a service without your consent. That's that's not cool. And if, if that can be done, then we know that data's collected somewhere and in some way has determined for itself. This is, where does artificial intelligence go? Does your device start narking you out? So do we end up in a world where it's not that the NSA is listening to what you're saying. It's that your own technology is listening to what you're saying, but your technology tells on you. Like if you start talking about doing a drug deal, it's going to alert. And, and, and this is a thing. I don't think that exists yet, but there is no reason that it couldn't. Well, it violates our constitutional rights. That ship's out the door. That doesn't mean we don't use that as a defense mechanism, but we don't use it as a mental inter, you know, mental masturbation defense mechanism. Just because it's constitutionally uh, forbidden doesn't mean they would. So you could actually have the ability to take all of these smart devices and start to build intelligence in them. The, the device knows when to rat you out. If it knows when to tell you that your sheets are here, You, you, you see what I'm saying. And it, 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 it solves a major problem for the people that are in power. You can't store all the data. You can't. If you start thinking about all of the voice that could be recorded in our country per minute, then per hour, then per day, then per month, then per year... The type of data centers you're talking about make that giant one in Utah for the NSA look like nothing. They make it look like a McDonald's Mart. I'm serious. So if you have mechanisms of intelligence that capture that which kind of would make the red flag go off, and I'll tell you what, if they ever sell that type of technology to you, they'll do it like this. They'll find a child that was going to be lost, They'll save a life, they'll save a celebrity, they'll prevent a mass shooting, and they'll say, see? And they'll say, see? And I'll tell you this. Forget about the technology that's coming. Forget about the technology that's here. If the technology that existed as of 2005 existed in 1935, it's probable that there wouldn't be a Jewish person left on the planet. 
And that's the scary thing about the progression of technology. For everything it can do for you, it can do something to you. And we just need to be really mindful. And I'm not going to speak out on whether or not I think that your phone in this particular call did those things. I don't know. We need a, a pattern is not two. Please get back to me if this continues. And if you're experiencing this, let me know. But I don't know, man. I think I'd have to test this theory. I think I'd have to go plant some things to see if they come to fruition. And unless you can have a repeatable result, you don't really have conclusive proof. If you're developing apps that do this shit and you'll talk, tell me about it, please tell me about it. Anyway, with that, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Jacob Nelson up here in uh, Northwest Arkansas. Question for you on uh, hunting with um, – I'm going to be hunting deer this year with the 270 Winchester. Um, I, the area I'm going to be hunting in, I'm not going to have shot longer than about 60 yards. So I'm curious about uh, bullet choice in this case where um, the higher the, the higher velocity of the 270 and uh, the, the, the relatively close shot, um, curious as to what you might suggest as far as bullet choice where we're going to have a little more need for for rapid expansion and to obviously up beyond beyond shot placement my, my other key there is to try to anchor the deer um and i figure with bullet and shot placement that's the key so you know input there would be great thanks jeff have a day uh if it seemed like there was like something missing there like a part where it kind of jumped from one thing to the next there was when he starts talking about shot placement there was like Uh, 15 seconds of, like, there was just nothing. I thought the call dropped, and then it picked back up. I cut that 15 seconds of nothing out so you wouldn't have to listen to it, put it back together, because I get the gist of it. And, in fact, this gentleman emailed me, and I wasn't actually going to put this on the air. I just answered him in a personal email today, and what I told him was the following. I suggest that you just get cheap, old-fashioned Remington green and box, you know, green and yellow box, 130-grain uh, core locks, And don't worry about it. And further, next weekend, I'm going hunting with a 308. This is the gun that I've decided I'll be taking this time. And I'll be shooting 150 grain Remington green and, green and yellow box core locks. They're 12-something a box, right? And the reason is they work, and it's a deer. It's not armor-plated. It's not an elk. It's not a moose. And you're flat out telling me you're not going to be shooting 300 yards. Frankly, I may be shooting two 250 yards. And they're good enough. If I was going to be out testing the absolute capabilities of myself in the rifle and was open to taking a 400-yard shot, you know, I'd be shooting a more premium round or a hand load or something like that. I've tried the premium ammo. And recently, a guy named JR, he'll be here at the workshop for those of you that are coming. He's been to quite a few of them. Really cool dude. Uh, last year, he was going hunting for elk in New Mexico. And he came to me when we was at the last workshop and said, I don't have time for hand loads and stuff like that. I'm going to be shooting a 308 at elk. You know, what do you recommend? I said federal premium, either trophy bonded bear claw or nozzler partition or something like that, but federal premium and, and, and pick a good premium 180 grain bullet. And he did, and it worked fantastic. And the elk he hit, even though he blew the hell out of the lungs, took a while to go down because they're a big animal. A deer's not an elk. You're talking about an animal, a big white tail is 200 pounds. Now, I know there's some bigger ones, but not in Arkansas. All right? Further south you go, the smaller the deer get. I shot a doe one time that on the hoof 
uh, live weight was over 200, 210 pounds. Two, I was like 212, 213. We actually weighed her ungutted, just because ungutted, if that's a thing, before field dressing her, just because we were curious to how much this damn deer weighed. She was so big and old. Um, but it's, it, it's still not, that's not even close to elk size, right? And then you're talking about short distance shots. I've used things like I, I, the reason I recommended JR, the 180 grain federal premium in nozzler partition, is that nozzler partition bullet has been around forever. It's been around forever, and it's a really great bullet. It's, it's not the new polymer tip super duper armor piercing shit or nothing, but it's, it's damn good, and they load that thing to the max. Uh, and I'm sure. You know, if you wanted to make an equivalent of that for 270, you'd 150 grain nozzler partition. Federal premium, I'm sure they make it in 270. Well, I, I shot a, another fairly large doe, probably 170 pound doe, with that many years ago. Last time I ever used them on whitetails. Uh, we were doing like two man drives where you basically have one person coming through sneaking, uh, still hunting, and then another stander. And my uncle pushed a doe out in front of me that ended up, I want to say, 11, 12 yards, and really in thick stuff where I had the shot. I'm not going to let her go further. I'm going to take it right behind the shoulder. Boom. Blew the offside shoulder off. Off. Like, it was attached by skin, but it wasn't. When I skinned it, the, the offside shoulder fell out in the hide, and the hole that was there, honest to God, you could have threw a football through it if you was good enough throwing a football in a spiral. It would have went right into the chest cavity. It's just not necessary. And there's no reason to spend $30 a box on ammo. I think most people, and you could do the, the you know, kind of the, the, the stock Winchester or whatever. I just have faith in Remington because I've used the ammo so much, and it was what was always available. You know, my uncle shot a 35 Remington. He used 200 grain round nose core lock Remingtons. I had a 306. I used 150 grain core lock Remingtons. Uh, and and it, it eventually, because we started going bear hunting, I, I went to 180 grainers. But when I moved down here, and that's what I was using in 306 and 308, and I started seeing the, the, the results, I went back to the 150s because they were more likely to anchor that deer. Now, anchoring a deer. If you shoot a deer with a 130-grain core lock behind the shoulder through the lungs... It may or may not drop where it stands, but it's not going very far. And if you do have to follow it, it's going to have a hole through both sides. You're not going to have any trouble finding it. If you break one of the shoulders, you're more likely to either anchor it or put it right down. But the lung shot is my preferred shot on a deer, and I'll take shoulder if I can. If I get 100% broadside, sometimes I won't take that shoulder blade. Because... Then I'm going through both shoulders, and I might only hit the front of the lungs. Maybe nick them. But if I have any angle, like an angle through to the rear, I'll take that shoulder blade out because that, that's broken. That's shards of bone. It's going down. But I've done it both with shoulder shots and lungs where you shoot that deer, and if you hit center mass on those lungs, it looks like dynamite went off inside it. They just down. I've, I've hot, heart shot deer. It's a harder shot. And every deer I've hit in the heart jumped and ran. Wasn't hard to find them, but they jumped and ran. And yeah, it looked like somebody was spraying blood out of a hose tracking it. 
But they went further than lung shot. Even the deer that I've shot in the lungs that have run, they don't go far. Usually they get a few steps, and even if they get another 50 or 60 feet, they're running with their face in the dirt and their back legs are just instinctually pushing. So that's what I that that they, that's the shot placement I prefer. The other place, if you're you know, if I'm 50 yards or less, and I can see that little bulging spot behind the ear, I'll take a headshot. Now I'm really now I've got to have a good rest, and I've got to have an absolute not one single twig in between me and, and the and the deer. And I've recently shot that rifle at that range. I've I shot one deer 250 yards, shot her in the head through the ear hole. You know I mean I'll do it, but preference is is the lungs. But yeah, you blow the cranium out, it could be a 38 special and it's to the ground. So. You know, use that information as is suited. I've I've shot more than a few deer in the head, but generally close ranges and absolutely certain of what's going on because the 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 problem with that is it yes it works beautifully, but if you pull a little far forward, you blow the face off of an animal that you don't mortally wound. You hit low, you're talking through the throat. You may or may not kill them. Serious injury, life ending injury, but unrecovered animal. So I got to really know if I'm going to take that shot. Uh, but good old Remington Corlocks, man. Unless you're shooting more than a couple hundred yards, I, I just I recommend them all around for deer size game. Uh, let's take another one. Hey Jack, this is Richard from Houston. I was wondering if you could give a plug to your website, uh, Walking to Freedom. I've recently discussed with the family. My wife has really gotten excited about po the possibility of moving to another state from where we are, and So I decided to look up some resources and looked into Walking to Freedom, logged in, and began to make some posts. But I noticed that the uh, the site traffic has dwindled off, and I know that your your listenership has grown, and I haven't heard much about Walking to Freedom lately. So I, I kind of hope maybe you could plug Walking to Freedom uh, for people who already live in states that don't plan on moving but maybe want to talk good about their state and what's good and what's bad. And uh, could log in and, and add to the discussion. And also, just as a reminder to people out there that may want to or even possibly think about moving to another state, to start posting into those boards about which states they think about moving to and also about the into the boards in which they uh, currently live in. I think it would help drive a little traffic that way, help us out and many other people out as well if you, if you could do that. Appreciate you. Appreciate the show. Take care. So, yeah, I haven't talked a ton about Walking to Freedom. And, I mean, I don't know if you guys noticed, but I guess about a year ago specifically – I made a real consorted effort to reduce the commercial time of promotion of other things on the show. Uh, I tried to move the sponsors to less than 30 seconds per sponsor. I actually pre if you've noticed recently I've started not using pre-recorded sponsor spots anymore. I thought that was getting old and stale. I always resisted that, but I had so many people tell me it'll save you so much time, it'll make your life easy. And they were right. It did save me time and it did make it easy, but I also think it reduced the value I was giving to the sponsors. So I went back to doing them individually, and sometimes I go over that 30 seconds now. But, you know, there was I, there was a point in the show's history where I felt like I got to where, like, my intro segment was 20 minutes long, and, and I just didn't want to do that to y'all anymore. So I, I've tried not to over-promote 
other things. And when I do promote something, it's like, you know, we've got the Quail Tracker launch coming Monday. We've got Crypto Gulch coming in a couple weeks. It's a thing that comes. I let you know about it, and then it's there, and it does its thing. So I haven't promoted as much as I should probably Walking to Freedom, the Zello channel, the forum, I mean, all of these satellite things that we have around us. So let me give you a little background if you're not familiar with Walking to Freedom. Walking to Freedom started the year of Sandy Hook when Colorado got really stupid and passed the magazine capacity restriction. And all the other shit was going on and all the other states were being stupid about gun laws and, and finance. And... They, there was a big push toward, you know, what are the best states to move to? And I flipped that around and said, well, first of all, can we figure out what the worst states to move to are? And we did a vote on the forum, walkingtofreedom.com forum, and here's the, the naughty list. And we probably should revisit that and re-vote and see who makes the naughty list now that maybe didn't five years ago when I set this thing up. And uh, But the point was, everybody... Every state gets a board, and people get to talk about why they want to leave and where they want to go, and they go into, like, let's say you were considering Texas. You can go on the Texas board and read postings from people that live here, people that have moved here, etc. And then the other thought was, well, if you leave New York, because that's a hell of a state to leave. That's a great state to be leaving. Leave a goodbye letter to your, your state representatives. I have chosen to go somewhere else because this is what you've done to me, and I'm tired of it. And a lot of people did it. But the, the forum doesn't have any real momentum behind it. But it's there, and there's a lot of people that have posted in it. And a lot of times if you post a response, even if the person that, that put that thread there did it a year ago and no, hasn't been back, if they subscribe to the thread, they'll get an email, and they may very well come back and, and talk to you. And I think there's a lot of interest in it. And I would tell you that the number one state that members of this community are walking to is Tennessee. It's not Texas. It's Tennessee. It's not New Hampshire. It's Tennessee. And I'm a huge supporter of the Free State Project. Uh, a little mini-announcement again. I'll have more stuff coming soon. But I'm speaking at Liberty Forum in February in New Hampshire. Again, this will be my third time. I think it's their 11th Liberty Forum. And I, this will be the third one that I've spoken at. So that's, I, I think there's no one else that can say that. And it's kind of a big honor. I'll be doing a keynote. I'll be doing a panel discussion Uh, I'm really honored to be to be part of that again. But in the end, the state out of this community that's drawing the most people is Tennessee, and I believe a big part of that's our own Nicole Sauce and the Zello Channel and the community that's built up there. And so, if you're looking at moving somewhere else, Zello's a good place to go too. But yeah, we should get Walking to Freedom going. And I'll tell you that I think the mistake that I made, and I did this. So it could be its own thing, and I didn't want to put a burden on people that were already serving the community. But I think the big mistake I made is I should have took Walking to Freedom, and I should have pointed it to a directory, the survivalpodcast.com slash forum slash WTF, and I should have put it at the TSP forum, where there was already an existing crew of moderators and administrators and things like that. The reason I didn't is I'm like, It's going to be 50 state boards alone and polling and argument, and it's going to be political discussions, and these people just don't need this on their plate. And I should have done it anyway, and I should have said, I want you to handle it 
differently to the moderators and the administrators of the TSP forum. I want you to treat it like it's a separate forum. I just want to let it share the real estate. But I didn't think that was fair either. I think if we had done that, it would get a lot more traffic and a lot more action. And it would have gotten a lot more traction and action over the last five, six years as well. What it really needs, though, is a champion. It needs someone to step up and say, it's my forum and I'm going to run it. And I was asked recently in a discussion that's going to seem totally unrelated at first. It was a discussion about deism versus theism. So I'm a deist. And that means I believe in a god of some form or shape or concept that I know that I can't explain. But I do not ascribe to revealed religions, one of which, and the most prominent one in our country, would be Christianity. And a Christian woman asked me, have you ever created anything and walked away from it? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I've created a lot of things that I've walked away from. Once I felt that they were running and that they were going to do the mission that I had for them, and they didn't need me to make that mission happen any longer, yes, completely let go, gave up control, and let somebody else do it, and seldom even check in on it, but occasionally take a peek at it and say, yeah, it's doing what I like. Zello is a great example of that. The forum is a great example of that. If there's someone out there that believes in this cause enough that you want to take over the Walking the Freedom Forum, what I will do is say, let me know, and I'll let you, sort of, kind of. I won't give up the domain yet, and I'll continue to host it. You give it a shot, and if it works, and you decide you're ready to have complete control of it, I'll give it to you. Because I'm not trying to make, and I'm sure there's a way to monetize it and what have you. I'm not trying to make money on it. And it was never the case. I just wanted it to be a resource. And if I could completely maintain control of it, but yet I can't give it my time, it can't be that resource. The reason I won't just give it to somebody is because I've done that before. I've done that before. And what's happened is they don't do anything and now it's theirs. And now I can't find someone else. And I, I still believe that this thing, and it might need to evolve into something other than a forum. Or in addition to a forum. I don't know. But if somebody wants to take that up, let me know. And I'll basically give you administrative access to it. And you start doing whatever you're going to do with it. And if you make it live, and it, it's clear that you're doing something good with it, I'll just give the whole damn thing to you because I want it to be there for people. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take the final one of the day. Hey, Jack, this is Rick and would love to see some more updates to the Timber Frame Pond and the aquatic system and those types of things on the YouTube channel. Really enjoy those. Thanks much for all you do. Well, uh, Rick, I actually just put out another video on the uh, Timber Frame Pond this weekend, um, and uh, it was called Aquapotics Update for 10817. And then this morning, I actually put out a video that wasn't really directly in the Pond or the Aquapotics, but I added it to the, the, the playlist for Aquapotics and Aquatics, and uh, it's on harvesting Malabar spinach seed. And a whoops in there, I, I kind of dumped the whole container full of seeds that I had collected, but they fell on a platform, and I can just sweep them back in, so it worked out. Uh, but I, I just wanted to kind of point out, I have 
a playlist for aquaponics and aquatics, and I have a, a separate playlist. Now, the aquatics and aquaponics playlist has um, all of the other videos as well, but I have one that's dedicated to just the construction and initial setup of the timber frame pond, and I'll have links to both of those in today's show notes. Um, but I kind of also wanted to just promote the YouTube channel a little bit. You know, when I look at what we have on YouTube as far as views and subscribers, it pales in comparison to the podcast. I think I have 30-odd thousand YouTube subscribers from a channel that's about as old as the show is itself. So, you know, you're talking, what, one-fifth? Yeah, one-fifth, right? Five times three, 150,000. One-fifth of the audience represented numerically on YouTube. And I know it's lower than that because there's plenty of people following me on YouTube don't even understand I have a podcast. Or they think my YouTube is my – I get comments sometimes or you, like, you can tell, like, no, this isn't my podcast. You know, like I had one guy say something like, if your podcast is so great, why well, don't only a thousand people watch this video? Well, I put the video out yesterday and this is not my podcast. But anyway um, – It just it just speaks to the fact that maybe I don't promote YouTube enough to this audience. I have a ton of video guys out there. I have, I mean, on my current property, I probably have 150 videos at least, just things we've done on this property in the last two to three years, in addition to the Duck Chronicles. I've got the Duck Chronicles. You can find that playlist at duckchronicles.com. And I'm going to be doing a lot more in the world of aquatics and aquaponics and really leaning toward the aquatic side of things. This has become the most productive and, and, and work, you know, limited amount of work that you have to do to get what you want out of it thing that I've ever done. And it's beautiful. It, 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 it's, you know, to stand out in your backyard and just hear the sound of flowing water and watch, you know, a six-inch beautiful koi fish come up and take a pellet, things like that, man. It's You could understand why in all of the formal gardens in Japan that they put the koi in because it's just, you know, I'm not going to eat the koi, but they're just a fantastic animal. And I invite you to become part of our YouTube channel and to uh, check out what we're doing there. And uh, I will continue to try to keep updating things. I've been getting questions, when's the next Duck Chronicles coming out? I don't know, because I'm pretty much to the point now where like the, the latest babies are raised, and the ducks go out every day, and they do the same thing every day. And, I, and I, I, I try not to do content for the sake of content. I try to have a reason for putting out content. Uh, anyway, it brings me to my last segment for today, which ties into the Amazon item of the day. And uh, I... I, 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 I thought about whether or not I wanted to talk about this at all, let alone today, but it is the fact that the Boy Scouts of America have now decided to become the Scouts of America, I think is what they're actually going to call it. I made a joke on Facebook about this. I said, so will the Boy Scouts now be called the Them Scouts or the Z Scouts, kind of busting on gender-neutral pro pronouns? But I think some people think it is busting on the Boy Scouts or the Scouts or whatever you want to call it now. It really isn't. Um, if you've listened to the show for a long time, you know what about the, back in 2015, I was done with Boy Scouts. When, when Boy Scouts of America came out and said that it was unacceptable for a troop of Boy Scouts to like go to a pool and shoot each other with squirt guns, because shooting somebody with a squirt gun is not kind, and a Scout must be kind... I was done. I actually even came up with the idea 
of something I floated back then. There's actually like a uh, just a placeholder website sitting out there with nothing on it called SovereignScouts.com that I own, and I've I flirted with the idea of basically setting it up with BuddyPress or something like that, let people organize their own scout troops and their own things to create environments for young people to go out and explore and achieve things and what have you and, you know, learn and, and get mentorship from, from adults that are dedicated to helping them and develop fraternity and with girls, sorority, and crossing those streams. Like, so back when I, when I, when I came up with the idea for Sovereign Scouts, people were like, well, you know, is it going to be for, for boys or girls? I said it's going to be for anybody. Anybody. Well, who decides what? No, that's not how the Sovereign... <laughs> it's like... You gotta listen to the words, right? Sovereign. That if you decided you wanted to set up a troop, your troop could be girls, it could be boys, it could be co-ed. You know? If you wanted to go out and do really heavy outdoorsy things, you could. If you didn't want to do that, you want to do something else, you could. Do whatever you want as long as it promoted teaching skills to young people and teaching, you know, quality moral upbringing without anybody telling you what that means. Because obviously if your morality is that we should go out and shoot people in the face with a bazooka, that's not going to fly. That's not going to fly in society. So we didn't need a bureaucracy. And this is, in fact, one of the first times I think I, I mentioned Jeffrey Pornell, who recently passed away on the air with Pornell's Iron Law of Bureaucracy. They basically said in any bureaucracy, the people that are most dedicated to the mission will go out on the edges of, of the organization and see to the mission mentoring young people. And the people that are most dedicated to the organization itself will become administrators and seek positions of power. And in every instance, sooner or later, the administrators will advance with promotions. They will completely control the organization. And the organization will drift into complete bureaucracy instead of its mission. And back then I said this was exactly what had happened to the Boy Scouts of America. It had become a multi-billion dollar nonprofit with a CEO that's making as much money as is probably the CEO of Walmart. And it's it's not that's not actually the case, but it's 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 CEO money, I'll tell you that. And dictating to the volunteer, the unpaid volunteer father who who serves as a scoutmaster what they can and cannot do. And that I pretty much was done with it. So I have a negative view of Boy Scouts of America because of what it's become in, is a bureaucratic pile of nonsense. So you may think that my view is that, well, letting girls into Boy Scouts, that's just stupid, and that's just another example of what's going on. I actually don't see this as the result, or uh, I don't see this as having the common cause. The common cause would be the, the bureaucracy and basically virtue signaling. Trying to make everything nice and everybody happy, you make everybody miserable in the end. And things that have gone on, all the activities they said scouts can't do, for instance, has ruined Boy Scouts from what it was. They're not supposed to go play paintball. I'm sure as hell, you know, I, or airsoft, or squirt each other with a squirt gun. Just as a few examples. And what this has done 
is it's hurt Boy Scouts of America. Now, I'm going to hear from people that are part of the organization say that you guys are the backbone and the salt of the earth, and you guys really care about this stuff, and you think what they're doing is stupid too, but it's still a quality organization, and blah, 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 blah. I agree with you, but the, the facts are, when you start having this type of thing happening, the number of young people that want to be part of Scouts begins to go down. And it was already in decline anyway. Because let's face it, kids don't want to wear neckerchiefs to school. They did in 1980, and they sure as hell don't want to now. So there's an image issue, and then doing stupid shit makes the image issue worse. So what this decision is, is not yet another thing like that. It's the result of that. In other words... The membership is going down. The money is going down. The organization is in a tailspin. So a business decision was made. If we open it to girls, we'll increase the number of young people that are part of Scouts, and maybe we can reverse the trend. This was a business decision. And it's not a terrible one. I don't believe that social justice warriors marching in Berkeley made the Boy Scouts do this. I think that organization decided to do this all on their own, Because they feel like they need more people involved. Now, here's what actually amazes me about this. The number of women I hear championing this because I put my girl in Girl Scouts and Girl Scouts sucks. They don't do any cool stuff. So rather than fix your organization for young girls, you want to push your young girls into an organization built for young boys. And I hear, we're one of the last nations to go co-ed. So what? I don't, I, I don't live in America to be like France. I don't live in America to be like Austria or Russia. I live in America because I want to live under the ideals that were America. Now, here's the other side of that, though. Those ideals are private entities do as they like. I don't think we have enough freedom for private entities to do as they like. I think private entities should be able to say something like, we're going to do white boy, boy scout club, and only white boys can be in it. I think that's totally acceptable. But Jack, what? because then you know who the racist bigot assholes are, and you know who not to deal with. And if you want to be that person in 2017, go ahead, so we don't all know who you are, and I know you'll be out of business soon anyway, and the market will fix the problem. But when we say what you can and can't do, then it starts to permeate down. And then when an organization like Boy Scouts of America makes a, a very sensible business decision, broaden our scope. By the way, Girl Scouts of America pissed off about this, angry, because they know it's going to take from their dwindling organization as well. It's called competition, right? Immediately, everybody assumes that it's social justice, that it's... Antifa, or that it's you know political correctness gone haywire. It's a private organization making a business decision. However, I do believe that Boy Scouts of America and adults in general and the establishment in general have taken being a child from being an amazing exploration of your limits, including sometimes skinning a knee, getting dirty, getting a cold, getting punched in the face and learning to deal with it all and learning how not to skin your knee quite as bad next time, how not to get into a confrontation where you get punched in the face, how getting dirty is okay 
but maybe you don't always want to do it, and this is the consequences of doing it. Like, we've taken all that away to where we have children now that we want to wrap them in bubble wrap before they ride a bicycle. We're going to put it, I mean, I, I see these kids ride a bicycle on, on freaking training wheels, right? The kid's like five years old. He's riding a bicycle. He's closer to the ground when he's on the bicycle than he is when he's walking, Okay? He's riding one and a half miles an hour on training wheels. He's got knee pads, elbow pads, a helmet with a chin strap. Seriously? And that is that should be the poster boy for Boy Scouts. When I grow up, I'm going to be a Boy Scout. That's how it's become, in my view. So my Amazon item of the day that you can find at T-Spaz is a book that I've recommended for quite a while now. It's called The American Boy's Handy Book, What to Do and How to Do It. And I say get it for your young girls, too. There's all kinds of shit in here, like how to make weapons and kill animals with them. All right? Um, I first learned about this book about 1987 from a late friend of mine named Kurt Nothnagel. And I worked at Lockheed with Kurt. And he had a, uh, a very worn but readable original copy from the 1890s of this book. And I tried to buy it off him. I, and this guy needed money, man, and he wouldn't budge. It was like one of his few really prized things, and he was unwilling to sell it. So he kept it. And then I found out that it was in reprint a while ago, and you could get brand-new copies of it. And, I mean, some of the stuff in it, like... They'd show you how to make a thing called a sling bow in this, which is making you make like these big, these short arrows. And think of it like, like a, you, get a, you would get a sapling to make a switch out of, like a whip, but kind of a stiffer whip, like for a bow, but with a thick bottom and a thin top and a small string on it. And then you use that to make a sling bow so that you're holding it out to the side and you pull the arrow back. And like you can shoot rabbits and stuff, traps, all kinds of stuff, how to, how to start fires, how to make a spear gun. Well, I want you to understand, when this book came out, like a parent would get this book and hand it to their kid and say, off you go, and they'd go off and do this stuff. And I grew up doing this stuff. This book will piss off the safety police. When I put it off, uh, when I put it out today on social media, on, on Facebook, I included the hashtag, hashtag piss off the safety police. And uh, I think there's if you don't have a copy for your kids... That alone is enough reason to add this to your library. And you can find it at tspaz.com, or if you go today anyway to the survivalpodcast.com, it'll be one of the most recent posts with my review of it. And remember, of course, you can always help support the Survival Podcast by going to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, uh, before you uh, shop online, specifically Amazon. And if you go to tspaz first and click our link there, no matter what you do after that, if you make a purchase, you'll help support the show, even if you were going to do it anyway. So that's a good reason to help support us and a good, easy way to do that. Um, that brings me to our song of the day today. Um, John Adam, who puts these together for me, uh, has been doing a great job of finding me a lot of music that I, I know and music I don't know and things that are challenging politically and sometimes that are just beautiful. Uh, this song is one of those somewhat challenging things. Uh, it's by the Dixie Chicks. And some of you just went, ah, and some of you went, oh, good. Some of you went, I don't care. Um, but it's called Not Ready to Make Nice. The Dixie Chicks released this song 
after that whole big thing happened. I think they released this about 1987 or 2007. And, of course, uh, all of that stuff really kicked off around 2001, right after 2000. I guess it was 2003, um, in the wake of 9-11 and what have you. We were about to go to war with Iraq. And um, Natalie Mames, who's the lead singer of the Dixie Chicks, made a comment in England on the eve of war that was basically, we're against this war, but I don't think that's what really, really pissed people off. Basically, she said the, the the president, who at the time was George Bush, was an embarrassment, and it made them embarrassed to be from the state of Texas. And this precipitated, like, a boycott. And I think there was two versions of the boycott. There was the actual boycott and the reported boycott. The reported boycott was like all the, the radio stations got together and refused to play their music. What happened was they pissed off country music fans so much that they would call and bitch to the radio stations every time that they played them, and they were turning off the station. And as stations were watching their ratings, their ratings would drop if they played the Dixie Chicks. So a business decision was made. These people have, you know, they've, they've tainted the thing. We, we're, they're hurting us. We, don't want, we won't get hurt by not playing them, but we will get hurt by playing them. And Natalie Mames absolutely apologized for this, but people weren't having anything to do with it. People were very, very angry about this. Especially, you know, the country music demographic is made up heavily Republican, heavily right-wing, and heavy toward blind patriotism. And she also continued to agitate the situation at the same time. Now, here's a little... Little secret about me. I guess it's not really a big deal, but it's, uh, and there's probably thousands and thousands of other people who say the same thing. I actually used to hang out with the Dixie Chicks before Natalie Mames. Before they were uh, a trio, including Natalie Mames, they were a quartet uh, made up of Emily and Marty, who were, were the kind of the backups at the time uh, for a, a gal named Laura Lynch. And uh, there's another girl named Lynn, I don't remember her exact last name. That, that played with them, and, and this is the early 90s, and they used to play bluegrass festivals and stuff like that, and they used to play about once every two months. When I was living in Louisville, Texas, they played a place called Breakers, which was basically a pool hall and bar. And specifically, Emily and Marty would like come hang out after they played. They were nobodies back then, and they were nice girls. They were decent people, and they were cool. And I'm not going to say I know them. I surely wouldn't take a phone call from any day, I'm sure. But, I mean, you, you, when, you're, when you talk to people enough, you do kind of get to where you kind of know what they're thinking. And I can tell you over the years that I watched that whole saga play out, there were times when they were they stuck together with Natalie, but they were thinking, please shut up. Please stop. Please stop making this worse. Why do I bring all this up? Well, here's how I kind of feel about this. In, two, in you know, 2001, 2002, 2003, I was still in a place where I supported this country without question. Uh, I had only been out of the Army you know, 10 years by 2003. And I was still very much a soldier in my heart, and parts of me still are. And I believed 100% that what we were doing was right, and we better do it, or this is going to come back. And I wasn't a real big fan of what, you know, what went on with that uh, either. 
I don't think I was upset about it the way some people were. I wasn't certainly going to write letters or threaten them or, you know, you know, what have you. I just like, well, that was dumb. And I think in some ways what they did was true to who they were but was dumb. If you build your whole world, your whole empire on a demographic and you say something you know that will be highly insulting to that demographic, you can't expect that there won't be consequences. And I would have totally understood if they would have completely knuckled under and not just apologized but begged for forgiveness and compromised who they were. And I would have completely understood if they, and I think they talked about it at one time, but if they had said the hell with this, we're talented musicians, we're just going to go do pop music. Because here's the reality. If the Dixie Chicks were the pop chicks, no one would have even cared about this. It would have never been a thing. But in the end, whether I agree with doing it at the time or not, I do respect the willingness to maybe complain about the consequences, but stand through them and not change what you really meant by what she said. When she was criticized for saying this in the United Kingdom, she said, I said it there because that's where I was asked about it. That was probably not a good answer from a political standpoint. But what are you supposed to do? Lie about what you really think to please the people that you're trying to please? Or do you stand for what you believe in even when it's unpopular? And I don't know. I, I, I don't feel a big sympathy when I hear, well, it's a shame what happened to them. There was a tragedy and Americans suck for doing this to them. They did a lot of it to themselves. On the other hand, people that are still like, I'll never listen to them again. I'm sure that you do not affect the temperature of the water in their pool. The mass numbers of people did, but in the end, I think they're okay, we're okay. And I think we should look back now and go, maybe even if you didn't agree with her at the time, maybe if you don't think it's the way she did it, she might have been more right than most of us were. It was a huge mistake. It was a huge mistake. I don't think Iraq's better off in the world for us as a nation today. I don't think our interests are better served today because we went into Iraq. I really don't. I, I'm at a point now where I don't really know what to think about that whole region anymore other than everything we touch we seem to make worse so maybe we should stop touching it. Anyway, I guess when you're attacked long enough sooner or later you'll come out with a response to it. This was their response to it. Songs called Not Ready to Make Nice, and no matter what you think about these gals politically, well, they're talented musicians. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sounds good. Forget. I'm not sure I could. They say. Time heals everything, but I'm still waiting. I'm through with doubt. There's nothing left for me to figure out. I've paid a price. 
Time heals everything, but I'm still waiting.